0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the Father on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates for in six days the lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in with in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and made it holy honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the lord your god has given you you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have interrupted our world and our lives with your kindness and even with your law. So now, oh Spirit, we pray that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, help us see him in your word, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. It's been a great weekend. My, my folks are in from Dallas. We've been fiesta-ing. Uh, the weather's beginning to change. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Uh, This has been a good weekend, and since my parents are in town, I was reminded of this week, uh, preparing for them to be here, I was reminded of a summer vacation that we took in the early 90s, uh, the summer before my fifth grade year. We were driving to spend a week in Destin, Florida, so we decided to uh, stop halfway for about a day and a half uh, trip in New Orleans. And on our second day there, we were going to have a a nice, leisurely breakfast in the morning at Café du Mont, Uh, and then we are going to drive after breakfast to Destin for the rest of the day and have a great time. It was a drizzly morning. We we parked a few blocks away from the cafe, and we uh, made our way down to the cafe, had some beignets, some coffee, some orange juice, and then leisurely moseyed our way back down the street to our van, which was already... Packed and ready to hit the highway with. And we were maybe 100 feet away from the van uh, when we saw on this drizzly morning the windshield wipers go up and down. And that's weird. Why would the windshield wipers be going up and down when we were not in the van? And, uh, and then we saw someone in our van uh, and then uh, my dad started running toward the van. Actually, I've never really asked you what you planned to do there when you got there. Uh, but uh, you, we can ask him later. But then this guy who's in our van whips out of the parallel parked spot and peels off down the road. And I am hot on my dad's heels. I don't know what I was planning on doing either. I was like a fourth grader or something. but he, my dad, in like, helplessness, in anger, in frustration, and in loss. Uh, is close enough to the van, slaps the side mirror of the van closed shut and the guy just leaves us. My family, my mom and my dad, my two sisters were just standing there on a drizzly New Orleans morning with nothing (laughs) and we had nothing to do. The the guy had obviously seen a a packed minivan. He broke the passenger window and was a master at what he did and uh, took it. After spending a few more hours at the police department, we we rented a Ford Taurus, bought several bags of clothes at Walmart, and went to Destin to have our vacation, which was then cut short by two or three days by a tropical storm. It was an awesome trip. But most of us in this room have been victims of robbery. Either our houses have been broken into, our apartments, our cars. We live in a culture of theft. Many of us pay monthly for a a home alarm service. We are paranoid to make sure that we hear our car beep or honk, like multiple times uh, to make sure that no one breaks into our car or steals stuff. We have armed guards at banks. We have impossibly complex internet passwords and password managers. Uh, Even some of us in this room have had our very identities stolen. At the same time, while over the past few weeks we have seen ourselves to be guilty in all of the law, in our hearts and in our desires, the eighth commandment is the one that doesn't maybe take a ton of reflection on in remembering times that we have not just stolen in our hearts, but we have actually very and really stolen with our hands. Maybe some of us in actually stealing a car, and stealing somebody's purse, and stealing a cell phone, or uh, nearly all of us stealing a piece of gum or something from the gas station. Or I remember ripping off my uh, several years younger neighbor growing up of some baseball cards. I made a very inequitable trade. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yet, if we're honest, I think all of us were kind of looking forward to a breather this week, weren't we? Uh, especially after the last two weeks of murder and adultery. There's like some really really heavy stuff that we've been thinking through. And while many of us may realize our guilt with this commandment, our guilt, if we're perhaps not thinking too deeply about this, our guilt in the Eighth Commandment, that of stealing, is something that we primarily think of, most of us perhaps, not all of us, but most of us, as something in the past. Like stealing was a problem that I had when I was a kid, or I was guilty of when I was younger. Many, if not most of us, think that stealing is something that other people do. I read of a report this week where nearly 90% of evangelical Christians in America claim that they presently never break the Eighth Commandment. Well, as always, I think this commandment is going to dig a little deeper than we may have expected. So to see how that is and then what to do with that reality, let's think through this Eighth Commandment together in two halves, that of understanding the law and living the law. So understanding the law, understanding this Eighth Commandment, like the last two commandments, the Eighth Commandment is just two words in the original Hebrew. It's just no stealing. That's all it says. One commentator says that the Hebrew word for stealing is ganaf. It literally means to carry something away as if by stealth. So you are sneaking something away. To give a more technical definition, to steal is to appropriate, to make your own, to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. Throughout the rest of the law, Ganaf and then the Eighth Commandment, as we see it here, gets expanded and then further explained to exactly what is prohibited. Because here it's not very specific, is it? There are laws against home invasion. There are laws against stealing livestock. Oxen, different, different kinds of laws and prescription if you steal somebody's ox, different than their donkey or their sheep. Uh, but also about letting your own livestock graze on other people's land. You are stealing their crops by letting your livestock be on their land. There's lots of other laws that fall under the heading of the Eighth Commandment, I think, like laws prohibiting harmful interest rates on your neighbor. Laws like if you take someone's, some, a guy's cloak that you have made a loan to as collateral, then you need to give the guy's cloak back to him at nighttime so that he doesn't get really cold. So it's fine to take some collateral in Hebrew culture, but not in an exploitive way. And perhaps the worst kind of theft that gets outlined in the rest of the Mosaic Law, a capital offense even, that of man stealing, that of kidnapping another person for personal gain. Slavery, blackmail, stealing someone for money, these, these, these are, this is a capital offense in Hebrew culture. While stealing another person is the most intensely personal form of theft, all stealing is indeed personal. There's a very real sense in which robbery is emotionally and personally destructive. It wasn't just a van and some bathing suits that got stolen from our family that day in the street in New Orleans. Like The insurance replaced all that. We got a different automobile and we got more swimsuits. Like those were easily replaceable. It was more personal than that though. If your house has ever been robbed, you know how personal that is. Especially if you've like walked in on that robbery happening. It's almost as if our personal property is like an extension of ourselves. And to attack the property is to attack the person. We've been considering how the second half of these Ten Commandments are about loving neighbor. The first half are more specifically about loving God, but then in this second half it is about how we love God by loving our neighbor. And breaking the Eighth Commandment is certainly a way to hate your neighbor intensely and personally. Now, one note here, the law and the rest of the Bible just assumes the reality of personal property and private ownership. We will later think through how we'll abuse and misuse this reality, but it can only be wrong for me to steal something of yours unless it actually and really belongs to you. Like you own it and then I take it. That is, unlike some communistic and even some more radically socialistic Bible interpreters, like the reality of this commandment and the reality of the Acts 2 church commandment or church community, where the early church is like selling all of their possessions and having all things in common, that doesn't necessarily mean that all cultures, and even Christian cultures today, should uh, just abolish all private property. What makes Acts 2 work is radical generosity the church deciding amongst themselves to make this a reality of their life. It's a shared sense of the generosity of Christ. We have the Bible to give us the positive side of this coin, but we also just have the world history of economics that compulsory communism just doesn't work. When people are not giving of their personal properly in generosity and in freedom, the economy breaks down but before we start getting like, all of our American flags out and waving them and like celebrating capitalism and down with Marx and all this stuff and yay America, let's hear from a, f- a couple of dead guys from 500 years ago. Some non-Americans here. Martin Luther, he's looking around at the German economy in the early 1500s, this is 500 years ago, in a early, early capitalist economy. And he identifies some guys who are gentlemen swindlers, he calls them, big operators. He says, far from being picklocks and sneak thieves, so they're not like going around in the in the evenings and breaking into people's houses or like opening a safe or a vault, but they sit in office chairs, and they are called great lords and honorable good citizens, and yet with a great show of legality they rob and they steal. We don't have to reflect too deeply to understand how Luther would see many forms of modern American capitalism as exploitive theft. Or John Calvin, down the road a few decades and down the road in Switzerland, says, It follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those who seek gain from the loss of others— who accumulate wealth by unlawful practices and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. They're more devoted to profit than to equity, to fair living amongst the citizens. It's almost a given though today that modern businesses, well, they will exaggerate their product. They will cut some corners to save costs. They will fudge on a few rules and regulations. They will just generally take advantage of customers and their employees. And then, because that's a given, we celebrate these kinds of corporations as like being geniuses. They are just free market capitalistic geniuses. We praise their ingenuity as good salesmanship. Now, while the American dream of wealth and upward mobility isn't inherently sinful it's almost ingrained in us that to climb the upward ladder of success we're going to have to step on a few fingers maybe even we're going to have to step on and push down some a few heads this is just ingrained in us to take that we might profit and so calvin goes on to say let us remember that all those arts whereby we acquire the possessions and money of our neighbors When such devices depart from sincere affection to desire to cheat, or in some manner to harm, are to be considered thefts. And in the same way, Luther says that we break the Eighth Commandment any time we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. We break the Eighth Commandment any time we take advantage of our neighbor in any form that causes a loss of advantage to him. If these two brothers are right, and I think they are, then anytime we unfairly take, anytime we acquire something that we ourselves would not feel is a fair thing to be taken from ourselves, we are thieves. Anytime something results in unfair loss to others, we are thieves. And so these definitions raise all kinds of questions. So let's just move now straight into living the law. We just live in a, like a Robin Hood society, that it is actually okay, and not just okay, but even commendable sometimes, to steal from those who we think won't miss it. And most people agree that it would be no big deal to kind of like just maybe steal $100 here and there from a bigger business or corporation. Like the, the night before, the last day of school in my senior year of high school. Some friends and I, we went to a subdivision where a bunch of new houses were being built. I can't believe my parents are here for this sermon. Uh, And we loaded loaded up the bed of one of my friend's pickup trucks with a bunch of bricks uh, that was being used to make some brick houses. And we took them uh, in the middle of the night Uh, to our high school, and we made just a really, really well-made brick wall with mortar and everything right in front of the teacher's entrance of our high school. Uh, This was like with cops, like circling the building, like scoping it out to make sure people like us weren't doing things like this, and it was awesome. We were like, it had to get pulled down with like a little caterpillar thing the next morning. And like we can like laugh at that, like boys will be boys and all of that, Uh, but not once that night were me and like my youth group friends (laughs) thinking we are robbing these builders of bricks. Like there are tens of thousands of bricks sitting around in piles in this new subdivision. Surely they're not going to miss a couple of hundred. And in ways in which none of us would have walked into Lowe's or something and like loaded up some wheelbarrows, and just walked out with bricks, or just started taking things off shelves and putting them in our pockets. We would have never even considered that. That would be wrong. But somehow, like a prank or something, just a tiny, tiny little sliver of a fraction of the giant wealth of bricks that are around this new subdivision, nobody will notice. And yet, this isn't just the immature hijinks of like some idiot teenage boys, we help ourselves all the time to supplies at work, paper, pens, paper paperclips. There's, there's so many reams of paper. No one will notice one being missing. We take other kinds of materials at our job. They're making so much money, our employer is, they won't notice. And frankly, they don't pay me as much as I think that I'm owed, so they kind of owe me in a ream of paper or a box of pins here or there. Yet, a 2018 National Retail Survey that I found uh, shows that American retailers lose almost as much each year internally from employees stealing from the company as they do externally from like shoplifting and other kinds of stealing. Internal and external thieves. There's both kinds. And all of us would agree that we would likely never like, put on a ski mask and like go in the middle of the night rob our corporation or our business. And yet we make all kinds of justifications all the time in the ways in which we should and ought to be able to steal. I know many of you owners of small businesses or CFOs of your own companies or whatever, uh, you are constantly combating how to make up for the loss of internal employee theft that we all just kind of take for granted that, yeah, that, that's that that's excusable. It's justifiable. We'd never walk into Lowe's and just clean it out, and yet one hotel reported, and it's just its very first year of being a business. One hotel had to replace, among other things, 38,000 spoons, 355 coffee pots, and over 100 Bibles. Uh, And we're just a culture of pilfering. Like, things are there, and we just take it. We fudge the truth on our taxes. We illegally stream music and movies. We share usernames and passwords on Netflix and other streaming services. Euphemism for we steal from Netflix and Amazon and whatever else. We steal answers on tests that we haven't prepared for. We plagiarize papers and presentations. We take out loans that we don't intend to pay back and on and on and on. Perhaps one area that we, before our confession of sin tonight, that we hadn't even considered to be that of theft is how we steal time. Our employer, most of us, if we work a five-day-a-week, 40-hour job, we work, our, our employer pays us for eight hours a day, and yet, if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps two or three hours of that day is devoted to Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or iPhone games. And so instead of paying us for five days of production, we're actually, uh, we've given them four. This is an inequitable trade of goods and services. They pay us for five, and yet we give them four. And Luther, if all of this is right, then Luther is right. Where he says, if we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it is nothing but a vast wide stable, full of great thieves. We just look around at the world. It is a vast, wide stable of thieves, and we are a room full of great thieves. And here's the thing. God hates it. Over and over and over again throughout Israel's history, the prophets would come and loudly and clearly denounce a culture of taking and of hoarding, of stealing from that which is not theirs. This is not honoring to the Lord and looks just like the nations surrounding them. This is not, they are not a set-apart royal priesthood at all whatsoever. They are thieves just like everyone else. Now, stealing and coveting the the 8th and the 10th commandments they are certainly related after all you wouldn't steal something that you didn't look after and long for for yourself but there's a sense in which stealing is behind all of the other commandments as well like we take god's glory for ourselves we steal god's glory and thus we break the first commandment we take we rob god's name in a meaningless or unserious way and we break the third commandment we take each other's lives and we take each other's wives and we break the sixth and the seventh commandments. In fact, it would be wise of us to observe that it is very, very difficult to break just one commandment in isolation. One level of lawlessness moves into another and then it is just overlap in our lawlessness towards God, making compromises and justifying sin as we go. And so, Out of love for creation, out of love for humanity, God intervenes and with very, very forceful clarity confronts us with a big old mirror and says, You shall not steal. You are my people. Now it's not as if uh, some Hebrew, when he dies and he approaches the pearly pearly gates— he says, I, I didn't steal, so I should, I should be allowed uh, to be in your presence. I, I didn't break any of these commandments. No, God is not saying you should not steal to be my people. Remember the very beginning of chapter 20, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has redeemed a people, not because of what they have done, but because of nothing that they have done now out of covenant love for him, out of love for, the, for their neighbors, out of love for one another, they're not to steal. Because as we have thought about with other commandments, it isn't just about what God is negatively prohibiting in this commandment. There's a flip side of the coin of the Eighth Commandment. What is the, what is the positive affirmation of the reality of the Eighth Commandment that God intends for his people to live into? They're certainly not to steal. But then what is the positive side of that? Well, We might say th- three things that we're going to spend the rest of our evening together and thinking through. Three things on what the positive side of the coin is. That of contentment, that of stewardship, and that of g- generosity. So first of all, contentment. Every act of theft is an act of discontentment. I am not happy with what I have, so therefore I need to take more. Of course, this can happen with the impoverished, with those who find themselves in financial difficulty. God's wisdom, his his providence, and his care for me, they sure do not seem like wisdom and care when I'm not even sure how I'm going to come up with enough to pay for the rent this month or I don't have enough for groceries or for even diapers this month. How? What what am I supposed to do, God? You've left me with no other option perhaps. But as tempting as it may seem to cut a financial corner, as tempting as it may seem to fudge or exaggerate here or there or even flat out steal or shoplift. To do so would be an exercise in faithlessness. Acting in faith in God's care will play out in your life to say, I'm not sure what to do, and I'm not sure where the rent money is going to come from, but I know that you do not desire me to sin, and I know that your promises are sure and are true. But this kind of discontentment is not just for those who are in the midst of financial difficulty. It is a universal human condition. The very rich will just as easily, perhaps even more likely, look to take advantage of and exploit the poor. Behind this heart, and not just like a Bernie Madoff, like Ponzi scheme kind of a guy, but behind this kind of heart is looking, is a a heart of discontentment the heart of, I do not have enough. Perhaps those of us who own small businesses and look to unfairly squeeze a few more dollars out of our employees or out of their benefits so that we'll have enough for the European vacation that I think that I'm owed. I deserve this because I'm an American. Anytime we steal from others, We are not only trusting in God's providential care to provide what we need personally, but we are attacking God's providential care for others. God has providentially provided for others. And when we steal or take from others, then we are sliding in as someone with higher wisdom and higher authority to say that what God has given to you actually belongs to me. So the Eighth Commandment comes and urges us towards greater faith in God's care. Greater faith to, even while we are living in a culture of consumerism, of more and more and more, to actually live into a life of contentment. That what you have given me is what, in your wisdom, you have decided what I need. The second positive side of the coin that the Eighth Commandment comes to grow us in is stewardship. And what is stewardship? What does it mean to steward something? Well, simply just to take care of something on someone else's behalf. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a parable of a landowner who gives three servants varying degrees of money to steward, to take care of while he's gone. They're to be his, his money managers. They're to do something with the money to increase the profit of the master's wealth and rule. And as we've often thought about together, everything that we own, we actually don't. Everything that we own belongs to God, and He has, for a period of time, in His wisdom, given us possessions to steward, to be His third party money managers. And so our paychecks, our houses, our cars, our second cars, all of it belongs to the Lord. And in his kindness and his provision, he has allowed us to steward these things for the good of others and for the good of his kingdom. Earlier we sang, this is my father's world. All of it. Clint read from Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Or I like how the CSB translate that to say that the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Everything that you can see, including you and I, belong to to God. And so ownership and private property and all the stuff that I own is not just about me and my pleasure. Whatever I want to do, whatever I want to buy, I should. No, God gives me gifts so that I might use them for his kingdom and his glory, not for my glory. Lord Denethor, the steward of Gondor, He is not the rightful king of Gondor, as we all know, right? Aragorn, the heir of Isildur, he is the rightful king of Gondor. Half of you are like, uh, anyway. Denethor, Denethor, he is from a long line of stewards. Those who are to care for, to protect, to guard, and for a time, Manage the throne of Gondor as Gondor awaits the return of the king. This is Lord of the Rings. All right, anyway. Uh, and yet, as image bearers of God, as his steward kings and queens, he has invited us into care for, he has invited us into cooperation for the kingdom. This is what Denethor was always meant to do, care for the kingdom of Gondor as they all awaited the return of the king. And what happens when we forget who we are, when we confuse our role as steward and we instead convince ourselves that we are actually the king sitting on the throne? What happens? Madness, greed, grasping after the throne in ways in which is damaging to ourselves, damaging to our families, damaging to the entire kingdom— But he has called us into, in a stewarding role, a role of participation, of cooperation, for caring for the kingdom, which now gets us to our third positive side of the coin, that of generosity. Part of stewardship is working hard. Hard work. Earning money. Even like earning wildly crazy, huge profits is not inherently sinful. Is not a bad desire. In fact, Paul looks at both sides of the coin of the eighth commandment in Ephesians 4, where he says, Let the thief no longer steal. Thou shalt not steal. Steal. Don't do that. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, in growing in love for God, in growing in love for our neighbor, we should not steal from others. But one overreaction against Western exploitation and greed is to say now that all capitalism is bad. The desire for profits is inherently corrupting. Of course, many find themselves in financial difficulty because of exploitation and because of prohibitive life circumstances. But others might say, you know what, I really don't care about getting the best job I can. In fact, I don't really care about getting any kind of a job. I don't care about the big house or the fancy car. I don't care about the so-called American dream. It's just a myth, and it doesn't create any kind of contentment or happiness. All I care about is contentment with Jesus. Amen, right? On the one hand, we can say yes and amen. Consumerism and more stuff does not provide contentment, and we ought to be providing or searching after greater and deeper contentment with Christ. And it is more than possible for you to get a decently paying hourly job. This is, this is the kind of honest work that Paul is commending in Ephesians 4. It is good work. It is possible for you to live with your parents for the rest of your life. It is possible for you to do all of this kind of living and have a wonderful, growing knowledge of the Lord have a deeply contented relationship with him. But being barely able to each month just eke out the bills, this puts you in a position where you will not be able to help others who find themselves in a legitimate need, not because of an internal motivation like you might have, but who find themselves in legitimate need because of external circumstances in their life. Like, even if you legitimately do not care one bit about the American dream, for the sake of your neighbor, who doesn't necessarily, same as you, also not desire like a huge house or a fancy car, but would just like to be able to pay for rent in any kind of an apartment or house or have any kind of a functioning vehicle, for the future sake of your parents, whom you are presently content to live with, but they themselves will eventually need care, which requires money. For the sake of the good of others, for your love of neighbor, go to school and study as hard as you can. Get the best grades possible. Get into the best schools. Find the best, most fulfilling, God-honoring job that you can find that pays you the most amount of money. Why? Because you're inherently selfish and sinful? No. Not just for greater influence in the direction of that company in which you want to keep getting promotions and stuff like that, but also because, as we said last year, as we together read the treasure principle that God raises my level of income not to increase my standard of living, but to increase my standard of giving. Work hard. Keep, if time and passion allows for it, keep pursuing higher certifications, higher degrees. Keep getting promotions. Why? Because the harder you work, generally, the more money you earn. And the more money you earn, the more money you can give towards church planting. The more money you can give towards sending minute missionaries, the more money you can support adoptions with, the more money you can give towards nonprofits and to other charities. Our own church budget reflects these realities. That of our creating in our just in our maybe first or second year of being a church, we created our own ABBA fund, which is an interest-free loan towards adoptions. That of significant monthly investments toward local and International church planting efforts, how we support local ministries and nonprofits, all of these things in an effort to push back against the darkness of human sin, the darkness of grasping and taking and hoarding and pushing back, even with our resources, with the stewarded gospel of light. Just this last week, Luke Sowers and I were talking about and lamenting in light of some horrific news reports. Maybe some of you saw earlier in the week. We were celebrating, though, the unbelievable work of the International Justice Mission. IJM, they exist to protect the poor, protect the exploited, with a horde of Christian lawyers who, alongside local law enforcement around the world, identify and then free slaves. In their existence, maybe a little bit over 10 years old, IJM has freed 49,000 slaves around the world. Go make a bunch of money and give it to IJM. Work hard. Push back against the darkness with every resource available to you. Jerry Bridges very helpfully says that there are three basic attitudes toward our possessions. The first says, what's yours is mine. I'll take it. And this is the attitude of the thief. This is the attitude that the Eighth Commandment is pushing back against and confronting. But then the second, perhaps what we think of as morally neutral, but perhaps the default mode of our heart, the second attitude says, what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. But the third attitude, transformed by the gospel, transformed by the extraordinary generosity of God in the cross of Christ, says, what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. And so, When a need in our body becomes evident, we will care for one another. The first time that I really experienced this kind of generosity was the church that we helped plant in Austin nine years ago. It was maybe six months into that church, and a gal in another GC spilled a cup of coffee into her laptop. It was was like a Mac. It was a nice Apple computer. It was toasted, completely fried. She was done. And my first selfish instinct was like, man, tough noogies. That stinks for you. Like you should take better care of your stuff and not put coffee right next to your laptop. Luckily for her, and luckily for the good of our church, uh, another godlier leader was leading that GC and immediately sent an email out and said, hey, let's, let's get her a new laptop. And not just like go get her like a Chromebook or something, you know, that's like $150 or something. Let's put together every resource available in this group and get her a new Mac. The gal didn't even have to for a second consider ways in which she might subtly or overtly have to break the eighth commandment. The church just came in and filled the need. Might some of the folks in that group might might they have not been able to like max out their Roth IRA that month? Might they not have been able to have the funds available to put as prudently and as wisely as they had planned to put all of this money in investments for the future? Yeah, maybe they wouldn't have. Might some of them not been able to go out to eat as much that month as they had been planning toward? Yeah, very likely. But they cared for the body. They didn't just care for themselves. When a finger gets smashed, every single part of the body devotes its energy to protect and to care for and to provide for the smashed finger. Praise the Lord, this story isn't just a story from a past or different church. Over the past three years of being a church together, I know of too many stories to count, just like the one that I just shared, of life and care for each other here. But let's keep growing in this area. Let's keep growing and holding our stuff even more loosely than we do. I'm not prescribing this, but one, one book that Marcy and I read many years ago, uh, the couple, anytime they'd buy something new, like a new car or something, they'd go like, bash the side of the car with a brick or something, Uh, like scratch a new refrigerator or whatever down the side, just so they realize, all right, I'm not, like this refrigerator or this car is not anything. It's just something that God has given me to steward for a while. And if it so happens that I need to give this car away, now it's got a giant dent in the side of the door. It's not, I'm more likely to want to give that away. So let's keep growing. Again, I'm not prescribing you to do this. I accidentally do that to all of our new things. Uh, But let's keep being transformed into working hard, into stewarding well, and even planning for and budgeting for generosity within the life of our church. Why? Because we have a generous God. We have a generous God, a triune God who created in love that we might share and experience in his life. God the Father who revealed himself in grace, who could have hoarded the knowledge of himself to himself but freely gave, even revealing his law for our good. God the Son who did not consider the place of glory as a thing to be held onto, grasped, hoarded, taken for himself but made himself nothing, pouring himself out as a servant to live and die for his people and who did he die amongst who were the men that he was lifted up between two thieves two men who had stolen and taken who had sought their own kingdoms without any care or concern for the kingdom of Christ and yet Jesus full of grace and hope promised to the one who would turn who would repent who would trust in Jesus as the Christ Jesus would say to him today, you will be with me in paradise. And then after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, God the Spirit comes and pours out lavishly in generosity his gifts. He makes his home with his people that we might be well watered and that we might be abundantly producing trees, not just to hold on to all this fruit for ourselves, but that we might feed the nations through him. Do you know the generosity of this triune God? If not, we would, we would love to talk to you about who this God of the Bible is, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. We'd love to talk about these things with you after the service. We'd love to, over the course of months or many years together, as this body, to keep growing into it, the knowledge, the love, and the reality of the generosity of God. And I pray that tonight, We might be more and more becoming a people that doesn't just not steal. It's a great ideal to shoot for, but it is the bare minimum. That way we might become more and more a people who gives of our possessions and gives of our very lives. Let's pray that that would be true. Oh God, we thank you for your overwhelming generosity that you have given of yourself that we might receive. We have nothing to offer in our hearts, in our lives, but you, despite that being true, have filled us. We pray that you would transform us into a people, your church, into a society that is unlike the nations surrounding us, that you would make us into the very city of God, you dwelling amongst your people. You would make us more and more that and not the city of man that works hard for the good of others. Help us to live into this reality of working hard for the good of others that shares and pours out because what you have done for us. Keep watering us. Holy Spirit, transform us and use us in your wisdom. In Jesus' name, we confidently pray all of this. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.ChristChurchABQ.com.